Let me just tell you how we got the English Bible. Yesterday, some of us went over to see the APU exhibit on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, you know, out of six exhibit rooms I counted, one was on the <laughs> Dead Sea Scrolls, and five were on the Bible. So there's a lot of interesting history about the English Bible. Let me just give you a little bit of it. You know, we tend to think of the Wycliffe Bible written or translated by John Wycliffe as the first English translation, but actually there were translations from the Latin Vulgate that were brought by early missionaries to England, some of the monks that came over uh, as early as the 6th and 7th century. There were at least some translations being done. But we don't get a full translation of the English Bible until John Wycliffe. He does the New Testament in 1380, the Old Testament in 1382, uh, some of you know that he was at Oxford, a scholar, almost unparalleled at the time, and he completes the entire Bible, but he's doing it from the Latin version. So he's doing basically a translation of a translation. Remember, Jerome had written the Latin, what became known as the Latin Vulgate, and he had gone, contrary to what the church had wanted him to do, he'd actually gone back to the Hebrew, instead of copying from the Septuagint, which was the Greek, to do his Old Testament, and he had found some Greek versions to do the New Testament. It wasn't the greatest work, but it became very, very well known eventually. But at this time, John Wycliffe uses the Vulgate, and he translates and basically comes up with the first English Bible. William Tyndale, he's in 1525. By the time he does the New Testament, he is actually translating from the Greek text. So the first translation we have directly from the Greek into English is William Tyndale. And Tyndale, as you know, becomes a martyr because at this time, if you know what's going on in the early 1500s, there is a lot of ambiguity about where we should have the scriptures. Should they be in the people's hands or not? The king of England is going to break off and form the Anglican church and leave Rome. There's a lot of going back and forth about whether the scriptures should be in any language but Latin. Should they be given to the common people? There's large disagreements among the different states and countries even among the church itself, there's disagreements. So I'm not going to go into all the history of why the Bible was banned at some times and not others, but Tyndale's act of translating the New Testament into English at the time becomes something that he pays his life with. You know, like he has to, he's basically martyred for doing that. Uh, and so he is at least the first person to bring it in from Greek. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but was it at all different in the East? Was this more of an issue in the West, or was it, was it also an issue in the East? It's a different issue in the East, and so that you guys are all on board, what we're talking about is the Eastern Church, which uh, developed in Constantinople and was going to remain kind of like a separated church until it's defeated by the Turks in the 1400s. Um, they were using the Greek text all along. But because there was a more familiarity with Greek, so basically the Latin Vulgate is the Roman Church, the Western Church. The Eastern Church continues to use the Greek text all the way through. And they actually don't make too many translations directly, but there are many translations that are made. Like, I, I can't trace all of them, but the Coptic translation, the Syriac translation, there's all these different translations that exist, even from the time, by the way, the Septuagint. was. It's more of an issue in the West, and of course English is only in the West. That's why we're tracing that history. But they have a, different, they have a whole different leg that is eventually united. Now, notice when I say that Tyndale is, is translating from Erasmus's text, what Erasmus has done, he was, I think in about, I'm not sure when it was, maybe 1515, he was also going to become one of the leading kind of lights in the Reformation. Erasmus had gone out and collected five or six of the Greek 
texts that he could get his hands on, Greek manuscripts, and he had assembled them. And Tyndale is translating from that text. Martin Luther, when he's translating in German just before Tyndale, he is also translating from the Greek text that Erasmus has assembled. And over time, this is going to become one of the diversions between how part of the church goes this way and part of the church goes that way, because this Erasmus text and the way it was put together becomes known as the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text, or TR. And this is important because some people stake their whole, like this is the version we translate from, and other people said later on, no, just put that marker there, we'll get to it. Tyndale never finished the Old Testament. His colleagues, Miles Coverdale, actually finished his work for him. Tyndale was martyred before he could finish the Old Testament. So Miles Coverdale completes the work of Tyndale in 1537, and that becomes known as the Coverdale Bible. And ironically, as Tyndale is being burned at the stake, his last words are, do you know what his last words are? Yep, that's it. Jill got it. Open the eyes of the King of England. So somebody knows their history. He's basically, again, the King of England has kind of broken off with the Roman church, but he's ambivalent. Should we stay within the Roman kind of practices? Should people have Bibles? At times he thinks he's in favor of it. Other times he thinks it's going to lead to revolution. So there's a lot of politics and a lot of, you know, church battles going on. But anyway, unfortunately, Tyndale happens to die at a time when, the, when this is all against the King of England's wishes, even though Tyndale had fled England. And he was hanging out near Luther, like doing his translation. Somebody got to him and he was burned at the stake. Those were, his, those were his last words. And just a few years later, the Miles Coverdale Bible is actually accepted by the King of England. And it was spread throughout England as an authorized text. Here come a couple of other Bibles. I won't go into their detail. The Thomas Matthews Bible was also a slight revision of Tyndale and Coverdale. The Great Bible, then kind of just because it was big, we saw an example of it over there in the APU collection, uh, at least a facsimile of it. The Bishop's Bible becomes another Bible that the King of England authorizes to be put in all the churches. So there's slight revisions. They're still primarily based on Tyndale and Coverdale. And then we get the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible, as its name implies, is actually a translation done in Geneva. And it's done at a time when John Calvin's influence is very much felt. So it has a lot of margin and footnotes to it that are more Calvinist in nature. And this Bible becomes problematic because in England there's this ambivalence still. Well, we want to have people have the Bible, but some of these Calvinist notes, we're not quite there. This is a little bit too much into the Calvinist view. So by the time of the reign of King James the first. There's a feeling that it's time to update a little bit what Tyndale and Coverdale had done to avoid the Calvinist notes of the Geneva Bible and to see if we can come up with something that everybody agrees on by eliminating margin notes entirely. Let's just get to the best text we can. And that's how the King James Bible is born. Over 50 scholars are brought in under the king's tutelage. Basically, he sets up, this is what I want to have happen, and fully sponsors this effort. In 1611, the King James Version is put out. The King James Version is still based on the Textus Receptus, which is basically what was collected, these Greek texts that Erasmus had put together that were basically 13th century, 12th century texts, I believe, that he had collected and said, here's five or six, let's put them together, see where they agree. And that's what the King James Version is based on. And it is the best-selling book in the English language. Probably the best-selling book, I think I would say, in the world. 
It is the most widely circulated version of the Bible, and it was a hit for a very, very long time. But it has, in my opinion, caused a little bit of a problem because it still relied on the Textus Receptus. Now, at the time, that's all they had. And it ends up being something that, because it doesn't have the kind of notes that the Geneva Bible has, you know, the Geneva Bible eventually comes to the New World because who came to the New World first? Anybody remember? Right, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, right? And they were Calvinists by and large as they came originally, so they brought the Geneva Bible with them. But the King James Version it becomes like basically the authorized English version throughout most of the places where the English language is spoken. I'm going to skip forward really far. Now I'm skipping all the way to the end of the 1800s, end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, we had, there's some new things had come up. First, we had a much better understanding of Hebrew and of Greek than we did when the original King James Version was put together. So over the next several years, there were attempts to make revisions. The English Revised Version was trying to correct a lot of our better understanding of Hebrew and Greek. That came out in 1885. It was an English version. I mean, in England, I mean. But you know what? People didn't like it. You know why they didn't like it? Because it didn't sound like the Bible. What does sound like the Bible mean? Like sound like the King James Version. So even though it was a very good version, people just didn't take off. The American version of that same revision, some of the American scholars that participated, they got to publish their version. They had to wait a while under the agreement, but they published the American Standard Version, 1901. Same thing. It just didn't sound like the Bible to a lot of people. King James Version had taken root so much with all its these and thines and, its, and the kind of measures and the metrics that it had in the language, people had difficulty with it. Look at the years by the time we get to the next monumental version, the Revised Standard Version in 1952. We had discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. At this point, not only did we have a better understanding of Hebrew and Greek, not only did we understand that the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed so many more things about the Masoretic text that we used for the Hebrew, but we had also found Codex Sinaiticus, if you remember those friends of ours from several weeks ago, and Codex Vaticanus that had been found in the interim between the time that the King James Version and by the time we get to the 19th and 20th century. Those were 4th century and 5th century texts of the Greek New Testament complete. Much, much better than the Erasmus text or the Textus Receptus that we had. So this is where the split has happened. The King James Version has continued to rely on the Textus Receptus. The RSV comes out and says, we've got so much new scholarship, we're going back and doing this from scratch. Now they call it a revision, but they have so much new stuff to look at when they're doing this revision. You can see in 1966, we get the Good News Bible. That's the one I told you was kind of written to the hippie generation. Very close cousin to the one we use in here sometimes, the Good Times translation. <laughs> the Good Times translation should never be used. That's the one where we just paraphrase the heck out of the Bible and don't know what it actually says. The Living Bible, 1962. The New American Standard, which I mentioned earlier, came out in 1971. Again, an effort to go back and try to recapture that literal style and be very readable. Well, it did one of those things. It was literal, but it's not very readable. You know? But still good to consult with, because I think it's one that I consult with a lot next to the NIV when I want to get a little bit more to what the literal words might be. Yeah, Ben. John, is the uh, New American Standard Bible just a revision of the American Standard Bible? No, they're actually different. 
that's the American Standard Version, and the New American Standard Bible is a totally different uh, translation. And that one, they actually tried to just go back and say, let's just start from the beginning and translate it new as literally as we can. And that's why if you saw in my form equivalent chart, like it's even further than the King James out there. It tried to be as close as possible, but resulted in not being very readable. The New International Version, the NIV, is the one I said has become the most popular one since its production in 1973. And it was a new translation. It brought together a group of scholars and went back to the best Hebrew and the best Greek we had. And it tried for the first time to do a very mediating position. Not to be too literal, not to be too idiomatic, to try to walk the line to capture the best meaning possible. This surprises me a little bit because I grew up in churches that actually made fun of the NIV. But as you look at it carefully and look at its history, it's actually a very good translation uh, because it can hit the meaning so well. Uh, so there are places where it doesn't hit it just right, and I can see where people can point out. But I think overall it's an excellent version. The two on here at the bottom, the Jerusalem Bible and the New American Bible, are the Catholic translations. Uh, Pope Pius, I think in 1946, maybe it was that year, 43, sends out a papal encyclical, papal edict, that basically says Catholics really need to go back to read the Bible and that there have been so many developments in biblical texts that we should look at the most recent texts, very modern thinking on behalf of the Pope. So the Jerusalem Bible comes out and it actually goes back again to the best Hebrew text we have and the best Greek that we have and comes up with the Jerusalem Bible the New American Bible in 1970 was another Catholic Bible that came out, and this time they included Protestants on the committee to try to make it a more common Bible to see if they could bridge some sort of ecumenical gap. So all of these that you see on the screen here, by the time we hit the 19th and 20th century, all of these had figured out that we had better texts. One of the questions on your cards was, what's a better version of the Bible to read and what do I recommend? Well, I like the New International Version. I like the NRSV, which updated the RSV. All right? I think the RSV is still a very good version because it still has some of the meter of the original language. If you read it, it actually you know, kind of sounds like the Bible too. But it is based on more accurate texts. So the NRSV improves on that. So I guess the criticism I have of the King James is two things. One is there's a whole movement of people who believe the King James is a, not only an authorized translation, like authorized by the King of England, by the way, not by God, <laughs> but authorized by the King of England, but they've actually made it like it's an inspired translation. Some churches insist that there is no other Bible than the King James Bible. There's actually a book you can read. It's called The King James Only Controversy. I forgot the author's name. It's a book I've read in the past that looks at this more deeply at why there are certain churches that insist on the King James. The problems with the King James are... Not only do they rely on the Textus Receptus, which is old. We have much, much better texts now. I mean, using Erasmus's text or 13th century text, when, when we have Codex Sinaiticus, which is considered by all to be one of the best versions of the Greek Bible in an earlier time, that's probably problematic. The New King James tries to correct some of that. So the New King James did a couple things. First of all, they recognized that there were mistranslations in the original King James because they didn't know Hebrew as well. They've corrected some of those. They've also dropped margin notes every place where the, where the King James, based on the Textus Receptus, deviates from what's called the majority text, or what people are using today as the official Greek New Testament. It's called the Nestle Aland version. I think we're up to version 27 now. 
So they'll drop footnotes and say, like, okay, there's some places. So that's good in the New King James. Although I think, you know, we're still repeating the same issue. I don't know what's so difficult about realizing that there are better texts out there. Maybe we could preserve some these and thines and just base it on the new text. But when did logic ever get in the way of fundamentalists? I'm not really sure. The last point I would make about versions is the older you go back to a version, the more the English language has changed, even if we haven't discovered older manuscripts, which we have. But even English has changed. For example, if you read the King James Version, there's a verse that says, the Lord God is very pitiful. <laughs> now, in that time, that meant the Lord God is full of pity. Not that he's pitiful. But in today's language, when you say, that guy, he's just pitiful, you don't think it means that he's full of pity for other people. You think we should pity him. English changes over time. So we have to be constantly aware, and that goes back to the whole functional equivalence and form equivalence. What is more important? These are all translations. None of them are inspired. Some are better than others. But the only reason they're better than others is because we're trying to accurately convey meaning and trying to get people who can open this to say, I understand what these words mean as I read them. Like I said, there's still so much interpretation that still goes on that you still have to do, even if you understood what the words meant in your language. Let's not make it more difficult by obscuring the meaning so that people can't even understand what the words are, let alone how to interpret them and apply them to their lives. So that's kind of a history of where we go with the English Bible. Any questions on that? Yeah. Um, the Erasmus version, was that, or the Erasmus text, was that also including the Old Testament, and was that from the Septuagint? You know, it wasn't from the Septuagint. They were using the Masoretic text mostly for the Old Testament, not the Septuagint. And by the way, so do we. Uh, even though the Septuagint is there, we have based most of the translations of the, of the Old Testament on the Masoretic text, especially because we feel so comfortable that it was so well preserved. We still consult with the Septuagint. And we compare it to, like, uh, the Aramaic versions of the Pentateuch that we might find, or some sort of Syriac versions, or we, we still, or even they have a, a Samaritan version. Like we still compare it to other things, but I believe that almost all of these translations still use the Masoretic text as the basis of the Old Testament, and our and our confidence in it has just been bolstered more and more. Yeah, go ahead. Um, bringing up the NIV, because one thing that I, I mean, I grew up on the NIV. And one thing that I like is that it does have those alternate alternate things, but it also has the thing that some of those passages that we love so so much that um, the King James version just has, whereas the NIV has it in brackets, like the the woman who would have been stoned but didn't, just you know, King James version people or uh, proponents will say they'll mock the NIV, saying you're throwing away these these stories or, or the ending of Mark or whatever. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you wanted to go there at all. Well, that's the issue that comes up with discovering new text. You're talking about John 7, first of all, where there's the woman caught in adultery. 7, 753 and then goes in. Okay, so John 7 to 8 is when the woman is caught in adultery. You're also talking about, I think it's Mark 16 or the end of Mark, right? Okay. So the issue there is when you're translating from the Textus Receptus, and you have those in there, you translate them in, right? When we discover things like Codex Synacticus and even earlier fragments and copies of things that are incomplete, but still that we use to kind of 
get our textual criticism down and figure out what's the best thing. So if you look at the Nestle Elan version of the New Testament, the best Greek we have, the most accurate compared to all the critics we've been able to include on this, those versions aren't in there. So the NIV then has the choice to decide, what do I do? And they'll drop a note sometimes that'll say, the earliest manuscripts do not contain this, or the earliest manuscripts say this or add this. Like it's been, they tell you where it's added. It's partially to mediate that position again, to say, honestly, the best information we have is this story actually doesn't belong in here. Which is hard, because I've heard so many preachers use those stories, right? And they make all these big points out of it. So now I'm even ambivalent. Like when I hear a preacher using that, you know, when Jesus is drawing in the sand, and I've actually heard a whole preacher talking about like, well, what was Jesus drawing? And I'm thinking like, he probably wasn't. It probably's not in the Bible, right? Like, you know, so sometimes a little information is dangerous, right? Because then you're sitting there going like, oh, I don't know what to do, right? But that's really why those notes are there. Because the best information we have now is that that probably was added. What does that mean? Well, that puts us back into the whole issue of like inspiration and, and inerrancy. But remember, we're always trying to capture the original because all our doctrines relate to the original and not to this. So I want to say let's be humble because the best information we have is still like a second century, third century fragment. It's a fourth century complete version. Maybe there are other versions out there that have it. I guess like the ending of Mark, that makes sense. Like if you, if you don't know it's there, it's not there, but something in the middle of like in the, not even in the middle, towards the beginning and then middle of the Gospel of John, just not there. It would either have to be a really big hole in the, in the manuscript. That's exactly right, because remember, they have no chapters, they have no verses, and in most cases, they had no spaces. They were just writing straight. So that's what gives most people the indication that this seems like an insertion. Like somebody along the line had this separate tradition was out there somewhere, and maybe it's legitimate. That's the hard thing to know. Like, maybe it's legitimate, this tradition developed. But what makes it not legitimate from a person who takes a conservative inspiration view is if John the Evangelist didn't do that, whoever wrote the book of John, then we have a whole level of issues we'd have to deal with, like who did and, and why did it get inserted. And if it wasn't somebody who had that, they're going to think that's probably not inspired text. It doesn't belong in there. Let me close with, with this. One of the last questions you asked about was the Apocrypha. We covered that earlier when we noted that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that existed around 250 to 150 before Christ, we noted that even the Septuagint separately listed the Apocrypha of the Old Testament, those books that were not considered canonical. And even we had mentioned that in 70 AD, as the diaspora is really getting underway, there's a group of Hebrew scholars that meet in Jamnia at the edge of the Sea of Tiberias, or, or the Sea of Galilee as it's known. And they actually have a pseudo-council, it's not an official council, but they spend time debating which books should be in, and they affirm once again that those books are not to be in. But you've asked, at what point does the Catholic Church include them? Because you can see, if you ever open up the Jerusalem Bible, the New American Bible, they're actually included not as apocrypha. For example, the RSV and other books will include them as apocrypha, like the book of Tobit. We talked about some of those books, right? The Maccabees. Well, in response to the Reformation, going back to history again, when the Council of Trent happens in the late 1500s, and it happens over multiple years, that this council convenes over many sessions. But one of the outcomes of that session 
is to canonize the Apocrypha. So the Catholic Church officially recognizes those books as part of the canon. The reason for that is Martin Luther questioned their inclusion in the scriptures. He also questioned church doctrine that was solely based on those books. For example, the, 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 the doctrine in the church of purgatory or the selling of indulgences to pray for people who are in purgatory and to help them get out of purgatory was defended by the church. Of course, it was probably an abusive tactic. And even the church at the Council of Trent recognized that it had become abusive and tried to curb the abuses. But because the Reformation was really gaining steam by this point, they wanted to kind of cut that argument off to their own people and said, no, we reject the argument that this is not authorized by the scriptures, and we reject the argument that these aren't scriptures. So we hereby canonize these books, and they become part of the scriptures. So if you open up the Jerusalem Bible, the New American Bible, those books are in there, and they're considered part of the canon of the church for the Catholic church. That is not the case with the church in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church always has followed kind of the Septuagint tradition and stayed that way. And it is not true, of course, with the Reformers, who had kind of said, well, this has never been considered to be part of it. The Jews don't consider it. We don't consider it. And so we really shouldn't be basing doctrine on of it. That became kind of a contention. You've heard me refer to it kind of as a knee-jerk reaction at the Council of Trent to canonize something that had probably not been intended to be canonized since it had been written down probably for 16 or 1700 years. Uh, is the, the idea of indulgences then, were those from the Apocrypha? Is that where they got somewhere in there? Well, not the idea that you could sell them, but the idea that you could actually, there was a place that was a place of interim judgment and that you could offer prayers for those types of people. So indulgences became the financial method where you could pay a priest to do those. Remember, you couldn't do much on your own in the early church. Like you couldn't read the Bible, you couldn't take communion. You couldn't really offer prayers on behalf of certain people. You were paying to have that done. Has their interpretation of that changed? Because they don't still sell indulgences. Have they just said, okay, well, this is still the case, but... I believe the best interpretation is they tried to curb that abuse. It continued for a long time. I still believe they think that prayers for the dead still have effect. The practice changed, but the belief has actually been probably strengthened by the canonization of those books. Yeah? I know that as it relates to purgatory, there are some theologies in the Roman Catholic tradition that will argue that it is in other places outside the Apocrypha as well. So that's, I mean, to be fair, I don't know if that's legit or not. I mean, there's, I, there's, oh, I think, a lot of room for discussion on it, but it's not, they'll argue it's not solely there, that, that it is in other places. But. Yeah, and like all things, the Council of Trent was a reaction to the Reformation, and I don't think it, a uniformly negative reaction. Originally, they even invited the Protestants to come to explain why they were protesting. Um, but it just kept getting delayed. It never happened. Many of the Protestants didn't want to go. Um, maybe they felt like nothing was going to change anyway, like they needed to go on with their reform movement. But uh, so, I mean, I think sometimes we just paint the Catholic Church as this big political empire at the time, and it had gone way astray. But I believe there's people who are trying to actually figure out what the right doctrine should be. I think in this case, canonizing the Apocrypha, from my mind, probably got it on the wrong side. I mean, there was probably a lot of political and church protection motivation behind it. Uh, probably not anything that, you would, that I could look at and say, yeah, that makes sense after everyone else, including the Jews, who this all belongs to originally, uh, not going that direction. Um, when I was visiting an Orthodox church, maybe I just didn't understand it at the time because I was first introduced to the idea of the Apocrypha. I don't think I'd ever heard of 
church is actually accepting something other than the 66 books that were ours. Um, but I was under the impression that they basically held them in the same regard as um, the other Old Testament scriptures. And I wondered if, one, if there were maybe are some differences, because this was a more the Russian-American Orthodox Church, and then there's the Greek and several others. Do you know if there's differences between those? There are. The Russian Orthodox Church kind of veered off the path at some point um, from the rest of the Orthodoxy. So, like, if you look at the Byzantine original rites and, like, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church, um, they're very closely aligned in theology, and they call themselves the original church, and I think they trace themselves back in a lot of ways they've maintained that. I mean, they have the same uh, liturgy that St. John Chrysostom wrote in like the fourth century. I mean, they've, they've kept it for so long. I mean, so they really have deep historical roots. But for a lot of reasons, the Russian Orthodox Church kind of went on its own path. Political reasons earlier, but later, you're looking at a post-communist Russian Orthodox Church, by the way. So during those years, there was a lot of distortion when they became you know, cut off from the rest of the East, uh, kind of developed their own things, became part of the state for a while. There's a lot of reasons I could talk to you about. But if you want to look at what the orthodoxy believes, I'd probably look at the Greek Orthodox Church would be the closest of what the Eastern Church has historically believed, and they're probably the best preservation. All right, let's close up. That was information for you to make you smarter, teach you some history, French, you know, all that stuff, little, little words like encyclical and edict and little papal bulls and all that kind of stuff for you tonight. Be well-rounded people. Let's come before God and pray. Let's thank him for the Bible tonight. Lord God, we've been on a long journey examining Scripture, and along the way we've kind of stumbled in places. Maybe we've wondered if we've believed this more or less as a result. But Lord, tonight I want to thank you for the Scriptures that we have in our hand. I think we don't, we don't ever really stop to just thank you that we have these copies, that people like Tyndale gave their lives so that we might begin a tradition of having the Scriptures in people's hands that people who came before us like Wycliffe or even Luther or Calvin believed that people needed to have a copy of the scriptures in their hands to read for themselves, that maybe the greatest evangelistic outreach of all time was just the fact that people had access to the scriptures. But Lord, we take them for granted. Even questions of interpretation and translation aside, we rarely open the scriptures to spend time meditating on your word. And Lord, I've said it before, I believe this is your word. And if I believe that, then I should act in a manner that's consistent with that, wanting to hear from you and constantly be discipled by you just by the very words that you spoke. So Lord, thank you for this long tradition. Thank you for our understanding of it. But Lord, this is just dry information if it doesn't turn our hearts into loving your word. And I pray that your spirit would invoke that in our hearts burn a fire inside of us so that we might want to know you more. I pray this in your name. Amen.